Okay, so we're going to move on to our panel now, um, and we'll bring up the folks in the panel, I suspect, here. Um, this is the uh, cases, and, and, and these really are cases uh, that I'm getting from clinicians. Um, I, I literally ask them, you know, what, what are the issues that you're dealing with the most, and try to consolidate them. Those of you who have seen this talk before, there's variations on the theme. Some of the questions are similar, but the answers sometimes change. So I thought it would be important to, uh, to go through that with you. And, and I think the music will be different this time, right? <laughs> Very different. So our panelists here uh, are Dr. Lennox, who you've, you've just heard from, Dr. Carlos Dorio, who is the uh, director of Grady Health, if I'm not mistaken. No, whatever. Point. Don't worry about it. I'm not the director, <laughs> that's okay. Edinburgh University and longstanding uh, HIV provider and Paul Volberding, who uh, we saw earlier um, and has been at this since 1981, founded the first ever outpatient HIV clinic in the world at uh, Ward 86 in San Francisco General Hospital. So we'll go ahead and, and um, get started. These are my disclosures. Uh, we're going to talk about initial therapy, elite controllers, TDF versus TAF, pregnancy that we just sort of got some questions about. What do you do with people with low-level viremia uh, if you have an M184V at baseline and our slow CD4 count response? So let's just dig in. And I'd like to frame this based on the question that sort of came to me from the clinician. I modified a little bit to make it more uh, digestible. But here's a question. Seems like we are now starting ARV therapy for just about everyone. What about starting immediately at the time of diagnosis? So here's a case. 30-year-old man was diagnosed with HIV four hours ago in the emergency department. Asymptomatic, don't have any data. Um, none of these data are available. The other labs, the white count um, is 3,800. Uh, lymphocyte count is 20%. Doesn't have any significant prior medical history. And then if you tell him, hey, starting out, he, he or she or he will, uh, sorry, and uh, so let's go ahead and go to the question. Would you choose to start therapy right now in the ER within one to two days? Uh, let's bring up the question. I think you get it. Uh, let's poll, and we'll give you a chance to vote. I'm wondering if I, I'll mess up my screen. I was going to try to bring up my own personal music. Ah, I can do it off my iPhone. Ah, yes. <laughs> Um, okay, let's see what we got. And it looks like uh, the majority of people go one to so Carlos, you guys at Emory, uh, you did a study like this um, a couple of years ago. What's your opinion? Well, how would you vote on this? Well, you know, it wasn't a study exactly like this. It was about, you know, doing rapid starts. I, I, I am a little nervous about starting somebody in the ER like this. I, I want to be sure that we can connect them to the clinic. And I don't see the need, the urgency to start the individual immediately in the emergency room. I worry that the continuity, I and mean, I just find the ER to be too disruptive. I would make sure the person, we can get him at a place that I can have a better conversation than what you do in the ER. And I said within one or two days, it's fine. I would like to do it, you know, as soon as possible. Now, the individual says, I've, you know, I truly want to start. I will. I will. I'll go with the patient. But my my preference will be, you know, one to two days. Once I can get him linked to care, I can ensure that the person. We're going to have, you know, unfortunately in our country, 
ensuring that you get ongoing medications requires certain things you need to do. And it's not that simple. And I worry that I give them a start pack and then we ran out of drugs. So I want to get, you know, at least be able to draw our load, a couple other things. Don't I don't need the result, but I want to start, have those things before I start the person. Yeah, Paul, what are you doing out in San yeah, Francisco? Yeah, uh, so San Francisco is sort of a hot spot for uh, rapid starting, and uh, and the clinicians here really uh, feel that it has helped uh, bring people in, into care uh, effectively. Uh, what we would do would be to send the person uh, really to the clinic and not start literally in the, in the ER, but, but they, uh, at San Francisco General, they have a, they have a, a really well oiled machine that, that allows them to, to get started the same day. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, you know, magic. I think starting one or two days later, uh, should be fine. Uh, but I think the, the message that everyone is getting is that everyone should be treated um, everyone should be treated quickly. We should we should really work on the systems to, right. to allow that. So, yeah. Well, I don't know that it's really biologic, right? They've been going on for probably a year or two or longer maybe with the infection, so a day or two isn't going to matter. But I think uh, from, a, from a social standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, getting something done implies to the patient that this is important and yep. we're not going to let this kind of just ride. We're going to We're going to move on this and help you get into treatment uh, as soon as we can. And right now in the ER, um, gosh, at least in our place, we're so overwhelmed with COVID right now. Uh, they want us out as fast as yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. Gonna work. All right, so let's talk about for this patient, let's say they come fast-tracked, as we call it, to our clinic. What are you going to use? Uh, let's look that over. There's all kinds of options here. Let's bring up the poll, and I'll try to play some music while we do this. Let's see what, how this works. All right, let's see what Hamilton answers here. Okay, the majority of people want fixed dose combination. Jeff, what do you think? I mean, obviously that combination has the benefit of being one pill. And it has, you know, broad activity uh, and potentially against any NNRTI resistance virus that's been transmitted. Uh, so I don't think that's bad. I think some of these other combinations like uh, the TAF FTC plus Dolutegavir would have the exact same benefits, but just would be two pills. Uh, and, you know, some of the other combinations you put up would work over the short term, even if you had transmitted in an RTI resistance. So, what are some regimens you wouldn't use that just wouldn't be the right idea at this point? Well, you know, the low-dose favorins, I mean, obviously that uh, has the potential uh, to have less side effects. But if you had transmitted in an RTI resistance and it took you a few weeks to get your resistance testing back, that might be enough time for 3TC resistance to develop. Um, and potentially you could make the same argument if we had more transmitted integrase resistance with raltegravir uh, or albutegravir-based regimens. But yeah. currently, as far as we know, there's still not a lot of transmitted integrase resistance. And abacavir is wrong unless you have your uh, BB701, right? Right. right. There, I've heard some people talking about, well, we could try the dolutegravir 3TC up front and then adjust if we find that there's an M184V or if the viral load is over 500,000. What do you all think about that? 
I think it's a bad idea. Yeah, it's probably better to wait. And then you could always transition over if you wanted to later. Um, I mean, you don't, you don't have a viral load. You don't have a CD4 count. You don't have a, you don't have a genotype. I mean, you're, 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 you're basically shooting yourself in the foot by doing that when all you need to do is add one more drug, right? Right. And so I think running through the rest of the list here, uh, uh, most of them are okay. Uh, the rolpivirine, for the reason we talked about earlier, probably not the right choice. The Runivir can work, but then you're giving more pills and you're introducing a boosting agent. And the same thing about boosting with Elvitegravir. We'll get to that a little later. So let's say now, um, just for any patient, uh, now you have data back. Uh, let's say they're coming back at seven days. What we do a lot of times is we have folks come in, uh, we get them oriented, get some lab work, and then have them come back for a provider visit. A few days later, it's variable. But let's let's look at this story. So you got a 48-year-old guy. You have some data now. HIV RNA is 28,000. CD4 count 650. The labs are over. The virus comes back wild type. Uh, no prior medical history to speak of. Normal renal function and okay to start therapy. So let's go ahead and vote on these regimens. Um, pull up the poll, and uh, I will try to. Uh, Play some music. I may not live to see our glory. I may not live to see our glory. But I will gladly join the fight. But I will gladly join the fight. And when our children tell our story, and when our children tell our story, they'll tell the story of tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Raise a glass to free. I can't stop this. Something they can never do. Sorry. That, that's the part I didn't... Uh, <laughs> all so right. Mike is serving as the DJ. I know. I'm, uh, uh, this is about good. All right. So most people went with... Um, most people went with uh, the uh, same regimen. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, did any of your thoughts change? Um, I mean, I, I would have been fine with, with, with Dolly Tanger with 3TC in this patient. Yeah. This is, a, this is an ideal this is, case. This is the one part. patient I would have been fine with Dolitegravir 3TC. Again, yep. I have nothing against Bictegravir TAF FTC, but, you know, it's, I mean, it's, if you want two drugs, if you want to avoid the, the TAF, if you want to avoid, it's a, it's a woman or a young person, you want to avoid the weight gain, I, I think the Dolitegravir 3TC option is a good one. What about other ones? Uh, was this one that you could use Ropivirine if you wanted to? Yep. Yep. Because yep. of the low viral load yeah, and a high CD4 count. Right. So I think almost any one of these options, uh, we're assuming the B5701 is negative, um, but we're really probably not using a whole bunch of abacavir these days, especially with the option number six here. Uh, so here's a question. You've been primed already from Dr. Lennox. Um, in terms of TAF versus TDF, or would you say either? Let's go ahead and vote on that. And I've got to get some music without not being able to stop it. All right. So most people are about half are still going with half, and then a smattering of others. Jeff, you presented this. Uh, have those data changed your opinion at all? Um, no, they they really haven't. I mean, obviously. 
the fixed dose combinations with TAF are very convenient, but um, I've been telling my patients for years, the newly diagnosed ones, that they're going to gain a lot of weight. And, you know, despite lots of warnings and counseling, et cetera, people are putting on weight. Uh, so I'm tending to try and think about TDF a little bit more for treatment-naive people. Uh, again, obviously, it has its drawbacks. Uh, Carlos or Paul, any comments? No, I, I, I agree. I, uh, I think I, I do think it's kind of settling in that, as Jeff pointed out, that there probably really is some uh, weight gain associated with TAF, um, but it's but it's a trade off. You know, there's no there's no perfect drug, and and I think you know. I think if if you have somebody who has, you know, renal disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, a smoker, you know, TAF is probably better than TDF. But if you have a young person with none of those things who is very interested in not getting gaining weight, maybe TDF is better. Or maybe, again, you avoid both of them and you use two drugs when you can. Yeah. Um, so, so this I mean, is... I, I was a little, again, going back to the previous case, I was a little... Uh, you know, word by, uh, I mean, by the data presented about not having enough uh, reduction of inflammation with two drugs. Maybe you want to comment a little more on that? Being less inflammation? Yeah, but less control of inflammatory response from the IS data that Jeff presented. Ah. I mean, the question is, what's the meaning of that over time? And correct, I don't, correct. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is to that, yeah. to be honest. Right. I mean, you need much data. longer follow-up on a larger cohort of patients. These are data on TAF versus TDF uh, with dolutegravir as a base, and you can see in the at least with the orange, sorry, the red and the blue lines, they parallel each other pretty well. The efavirin is a little bit late to the party, um, but ultimately gets there by week 24. Um, one of the things that was a little bit uh, in the journal viral eradication, which most people maybe don't see, but this is Andrew Hill, who's been involved in drug development really for 25, 30 years in HIV. And what he did is he did a meta-analysis. I think the take-home point here is that most of the TDF bad events, be it renal or bone, are really in the setting of a boosted regimen. And if you look at the comp compilation of at least data from clinical trials, um, this, there's not much of an effect that you can see of one versus the other, um, and especially in the unboosted setting, and see how narrow those confidence intervals are right at the zero from not favoring one or the other. And the same thing was really true in bone toxicity as well. Now, if you're doing DEXA scans and you're really, really uh, looking at this at a, at a detailed level, um, you may, you obviously are going to see the differences in bone. The question, I think, for all of us is that in these types of studies, on the one hand, these are pre-selected people who are pretty healthy, and uh, on one hand, so that you could say, well, maybe for somebody who's a little older, this might not apply and probably uh, doesn't to the same degree. And that also gets back to the point of DEXA scans, which really were developed where an older population saw normalized about that. When you start looking at DEXAs in 25- and 30-year-olds, uh, it's hard to know exactly what the data mean because they it's just not the type of thing that we see in young people as a rule. I mean, I'm, my, my only issue, Mike, is, and I agree with you, my only issue is that given where we are in HIV, people are going to be in those regimens 
for the rest of your life, right? For yeah, the rest yeah. of your life, their life, unless we find a cure. So you're talking about, you know, putting a 20 year old for, with a drug until they die that has potentially a problem with bone toxicity. So we may not see an issue today, but what happens 50 years from now when that 20 year old is 70 years old? That's exactly right. And I think the other, I'm just trying to create some degree of balance here in the sense of, um, you know, when TAF got released, everybody flocked to it because of these types of data. Now we're seeing the weight issue, and we're having to try to balance. And to me, the whole point of bringing all of this up, especially in the context of what Jeff presented just a little bit ago, is that as we get more experience with any drug, they start to they lose their shine a little bit. And right now we're in, I think, kind of a toss-up. And until we get more data, it's going to, you know, we'll retrospectively look back and say, ah, should have been doing this. But um, uh, I think everyone has a pretty good sense. The good news to me, and I think to all of us, uh, is that we have great choices. And I don't, you know, really, you know, dancing on the head of a pin sometimes with some of the nuances. And then, Michael, one of the reasons, obviously, for the interest in this Latrobeer is that it's another category, another drug in the same general class as an NRTI, but it may not have the same toxicities. So that's right. I'm more the And then the capsule inhibitor is a whole different mechanism uh, that we didn't go into great detail on, but uh, that's a drug that inhibit. It has two places where it actually inhibits of our application. One is on uh, the uh, the entry into the nucleus where the capsid acts, and then it also interferes as the viral particles coming out. So you're almost getting two simultaneous infects with one drug, and we're going to be watching that very carefully. Uh, and I believe the new name for that drug is Lanacapavir. Um, mm-hmm. so our eye out on that. So let's. This is we've already answered this question, but so I'll go through this kind of quickly so we can get to some others. But this is a, a woman who started on BICTAF. Um, FTC 12 months ago. Uh, she switched over from a darunavir-based TDF regimen, <clears throat> and now, you know, her viral load stays suppressed as we expect, uh, but her weight increased uh, about 26 pounds. And so at this point, what would you do? You have data now that you've seen. Can, can you go back to the case? Yeah. Okay. Go forward. All right. So are you going to keep her on her current regimen or switch to one of these other choices? including putting her back on what she was on before. Let's go ahead and vote. Is there none of the above? <laughs> Some other option. Some other option, yeah. <laughs> oh, didn't give you any music. Well, all right, we're probably too late for this one. Okay, let's see what we got. So the more majority of people are kind of pulling a George Herbert Walker Bush, not going to change, wouldn't be prudent. Um, some of them went with the Carlos Del Rio, 34% of some other options. So, Carlos, what would you say? I mean, again, you know, this would be a good person for Dolutegra 3TC. You drop off the, uh, the, the tap and, uh, and hope that, you know, I mean, some of the weight gain is going to be from the Dolly Tegra, but some of it may be from the TAP, and I want to see what she does without TAP before I, I give up on the Dolly Tegra. And you could also try the Dolly Tegra uh, real piperine uh, route. That's the other option. Another Correct. two-drug regimen. Correct. I guess what but I you, you would do so without much uh, optimism that you're going to see an immediate weight change, right? Right. And Correct. Word. Um, and that, that mechanism is really quite uh, obscure right now, isn't it? 
and, and I want to sort of show some data on that. So the question came in earlier from the audience about, well, is it relative not only to PIs and then in RTIs? So the left-hand panel A shows you that the, as a rule, the integrase inhibitors have a little bit more weight gain, and these are coming from combined uh, clinical studies. And on the right is answering that question a little bit about which of the um, which of the integrase inhibitors is most associated with this. And fortunately, this analysis did not include bictegravir, um, so I can't comment directly on that. Uh, the the hint is that dalutegravir and bictegravir track more together than say. Uh, than the raltegravir, but don't know that 100%. Um, but what I found interesting is that if you just sort of look at the first year and block that out um, and now look at it, it gets back to a little bit of the point that some of the audience members were raising earlier, is that, you know, it, does it continue on or does it plateau? And it levels off a bit, but the weight gain does continue, although albeit with a much less steep slope. So when you all see this, Jeff, I'll turn to you. How do you view these data? You know, again, before we had all these switch studies, it made me more inclined to potentially use an NNRTI up front if we had one with less toxicity, et cetera, like rolpivirine. But um, a lot of the patients we are seeing that have gained the weight, they're now two years into treatment. And so I'm not sure whether switching is going to do anything. And obviously, it's got to be an individual decision. Uh, and if so, you know, what do you switch to is obviously the hard part. And when yeah, you that's, say- that's the really hard part, right? Yeah. And and sometimes it's, it goes against the, the, the principle of not mucking with success. Yeah, that's true. You know, an interesting, Jeff, again, coming back to you, uh, the data on Durabarine and in an RTI with Eslatrevir, that new drug, as a combo. Uh, what do you think of that? And they say we need the, we need the data for weight right. gain. I mean, it looks like it's a good antiviral combo. The question is, what happens to people's weight? Right. So, you need a much yeah. bigger study followed for at least a year or two. Yeah. So as they said in Jaws, we're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what regimen should I use as an initial therapy in a pregnant patient? And we got to this a little bit in Jeff's presentation, but let's uh, let's take it into the real world. So this is a 30-year-old uh, female who's newly diagnosed. Um, she's asymptomatic, and she was diagnosed uh, as her prenatal visit, uh, and she's two and a half months pregnant. And She's got a viral load of 28,000 and see if we're kind of 650, very similar to our last case. She's B57 negative, wild type virus, uh, no prior medical history to speak of. It's her first pregnancy and she's okay to start therapy. So, uh, I'll give you a few seconds to digest this. Um, and we'll go ahead and pull up the poll and, uh, uh, we'll go ahead and vote. Okay, um, so dalutegravir, 
uh, that would not have been the answer a year and a half ago, would it? Um, no, would have been very different. <laughs> so comment, uh, anyone? Well, a, a big choice is between the integrase and the fabrins. I think that question has been pretty well answered. I think uh, the integrase works better. Um, and I think that as you, as we saw the data, um, the fact that neural tube defects really don't seem to be uh, a problem. Um, here she's almost out of her first trimester, so I, I think it would probably be uh, safe to use Velutegravir. Yeah. Are there any um, wrong options here that you see? I'll, I'll take that one myself. Um, yeah. The Kobe cystat has that is not a good idea. Yeah, that's a take-home point that uh, you don't want to use a, a regimen with Kobe. Uh, so you could use darunavir boosted with ritonavir. That's fine. We've done that for years. Same thing for atazanavir, and now we're finding that TAF actually is okay. So you could use TDF or TAF. A year ago, I was saying. Hold off on TAF. We don't really know yet, but I think there's now enough data. There's actually a randomized trial that showed that it was relatively safe, and so I think we can throw that back into the uh, into the mix. Yeah, we have a lot more options compared to a year ago now with those. Absolutely. Yeah, again, you know, the combination of what Jeff presented and, and Simpano on most recent analysis, and you have the analysis here in Croy, but the most recent analysis just presented and the data presented also by you know, the sort of the cost-benefit analysis by Rochelle Walensky published in the analysts, I, you know, I think has have made us a lot more comfortable with Dolly Tegravir. It's, yeah, it's still not zero. It's still not zero risk. Right. So, so I, I, tell us about that cost-benefit analysis that basically showed that it was... Uh, yeah, you, you know, you get you, you get more suppression and you get less maternal, mortali- right. maternal mortality with Dolly Tegravir. So there's clearly a cost-benefit advantage. Over the efavirenz. Over the efavirenz-based mm-hmm. regimen. Right, and this is these are data along those lines where uh, you can see that the time to decline a viral load was faster. We knew that. That wasn't new. There was actually one abstract at the uh, IAS meeting last week that showed that showed that um, uh, that 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 speed didn't translate into uh, less transmission. In other words, um, that that both were relatively the same effectiveness in terms of uh, not transmitting to the to the uh, to the infant. However, most of those situations, as we know, is when there has been intermittent adherence. Uh, I, I think it's rare. I'm not sure I've ever heard of a case where somebody is fully adherent and viral load is suppressed while we're getting a transmission. There may be an exception or two, but that's generally the rule of thumb. Um, and so, as we've talked about already. Uh, Dolutegravir is now a preferred integrase inhibitor for art-naive women. I will make a couple of quick caveats here. One, this is exactly the same story that we saw 15 years ago with the Favrins, maybe a little longer, where we started seeing neural tube defects in women on a Favrins when it was being used. And then as more data came in over the year, that that signal started to disappear, just like Dolutegravir, same exact story. And the second thing I'd like to bring up is that um, folate seems to be really important in neural tube health for, for infants. And so what we don't know either in the Athavarin story or in this one is, relatively speaking, what the folate levels were among the women who received this. And I think there's been some data that biologically showed that Dolutegravir in particular 
um, does interfere with folate delivery to cells. So if somebody starts off at a lower folate level, uh, that that's where you might start seeing the impact. So take-home point, give folate to women, uh, especially if they're considering uh, pregnancy or if they become pregnant. That is uh, uh, always a good thing to do. Let's change gears a little bit and go to elite controllers. We have, you know, it's about 1% or less. A lot of experience in San Francisco at, at Paul's uh, CFAR. 30-year-old man, uh, male diagnosed with HIV seven years ago. He's always been asymptomatic. His baseline RNA is less than 50, and it's been that way the whole time. Um, the genotype from a DNA was wild type. Uh, and he's okay to start therapy. Would you start therapy on this guy? His CD4 count has been stable at, at anywhere between uh, 800 and, and 1,000. He's now at 850. Let's go ahead and vote. Well, I'm not sure today's a great day to look around with COVID, but anyway. Um, so this is interesting because this this answer has changed in the 10 years. But, but it's moving in the right direction without any clinical trial data. <laughs> well, yeah. So how are we going to get clinical trial data when uh, it's less than 1%, right? And then we got a problem for Oh, well, we, we tried. We tried, but we failed. Yeah. I know. So, Carlos, take it. What, how would you uh, answer this? In- I mean, I, I, I tend to believe that 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 there is some benefit of therapy in in inflammation and, and organ disease and other components that were not necessarily just the virus. And I think that clearly there's enough evidence to suggest that you you have some impact on 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 uh, T cell activation that you're showing. I mean, you know, uh, that's uh, you know, Peter Hunt and others have shown this. So. I I have a discussion with the individual, but I would be in favor of starting them on therapy uh, rather than waiting. Now, you have to truly be sure that it's a true elite controller. There's some people that are called elite controllers when their T-cells over time are starting to come down. And I think you also need to be careful that those are not, in my mind, truly elite controllers. So I tend to be a a one that wants to treat or suggests that I'm, I'm not in favor of treatment. I see very few reasons why you wouldn't treat somebody. But again, it's really at the end of the day up to the patient, right? If the patient says, no, I don't want to take any medications, then you have to, you know, say, okay, here's the evidence and see you soon. And just remember that all drugs have side effects. I mean, they, right, may, be, right. they may be subtle, but I, I'm, I tend to agree with Carlos. I'm, you know, I'm under the influence of Peter Hunt. So uh, I would probably lean to, to, to treat. On the other hand, you know, it's, it certainly shouldn't be a strong recommendation. Right. I think the take-home point that we're hinting around here is that, yes, these individuals have a, a remarkable ability to suppress viral replication to the degree that you can't detect virus. But that activity, that effort, if you will, to keep the virus suppressed is, is challenging. And over time, like years, um, the question is how much will that take a hit on their ability uh to uh, stay healthy, especially when it comes to uh, issues related to cardiovascular health and that type of thing. And and if you're giving them a little bit of help with the uh, antiretroviral therapy, especially use a relatively minimal um, intervention uh, 
with that, without much toxicity, I think it's uh, people can lean towards that. One other good take-home point is that uh, learned this from Peter and Steve Deeks is that in general, if the CD4, when they look at a CD4, CD8 ratio, and if we find that that CD4 ratio, CD8 ratio is low, like less than 0.5, that's someone, even though their viral load's under control, that's someone who's going to have more chance of at least progressing back to dis, to detectable viremia, and that's someone you might segregate out as being treated early. So, Michael, yeah. I'm going to pose a question to you. Since the viral load is so incredibly low, is this somebody that you would consider two or even one drug treatment for? Yeah, I mean, I thought about that, and you could say, well, one of the protease inhibitors by itself probably would work. I just worry a little bit, uh, you know, we, you know, what's dogma one day is, is dogma newer the next. I mean, we were all into three drug regimens until we saw data for two. It could be, but again, to Carlos's point, how do we study this and do we, do we take that chance? Maybe, but, maybe something like a capsid inhibitor that has two mechanisms of action is pretty potent. That might be a choice. Um, I, I, I would argue, Mike, that then you're, then you're combining uh, two unknowns, you know, we're not really <laughs> sure whether it should, treat, should begin at all. And then we're kind of playing around with the drugs using it, using, you know, yeah. so I, <laughs> so to I, answer your question, Jeff, I mean, no, but I might use a two drug regimen, one of the yeah. ones coming out. So how about this? We see these folks, uh, patients who have persistently detectable viremia. So this is a story of a 55 year old guy uh, who was diagnosed 18 years ago and had pretty advanced disease at the time. And now he's been on successful therapy. He's been through the regimen you see listed there at the bottom of the screen. So it sounds very familiar to those of us who have been at this for a while. But now he's really uh, happy, stabilized on uh, dalutegravir, boosted darunavir, and 3TC. And we don't. when he comes to us, he doesn't have any resistance. But yet he's at 85 and his values are hovering somewhere above 50 and less than 100. So... Would you change therapy on this guy right now? Yes, no, not sure. Tag volunteer army in need of a shower. Somehow defeat a global superpower. How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire? The battlefield waving Betsy Ross's flag higher. Yeah, it turns out we have a secret weapon in the All right. So um, if you combine yes and maybe, it's almost 40%. Yeah. So what do you think, Jeff? I, I think the data so far shows that there is no benefit to changing the antiretroviral and that continuing people on their existing regimen doesn't lead to the development of resistance. I'd be interested to see what Paul or Carlos thinks. Oh, I think we're all just nervous, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, whatever yeah. you do, you're going to be nervous probably. So, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would, you know, work on this guy, talk about adherence, have a good conversation about the importance of, you know, really good adherence and then follow the person closely. I, I don't think he is at risk of, of failure. I don't think he's at risk of having a, uh, you know, developing resistance, but I worry about the persistent low positivity over time. Those people tend to not do well. You know, I don't think there's much, I don't know all the data, but I don't think there's much issue with adherence in these people. Is it? I think it's really something more inherent and probably they started out with a very high viral load. 
Right. That's right. that's the point I want to make. So I think it's important to go back to the biology. So this is what we want to see, uh, except in this case, it's it's above 50. So you kind of go, now what do I do? And a blip we know doesn't have much impact. But this isn't a blip. This is where the uh, the uh, let's call the treatment set point is somewhere above 50. And so I think it's really important to go back to the biology. And if we remember, the way that we detect viral load is in the plasma, and it's coming from HIV-infected cells in the body in the top part. And then the antiretroviral therapy that you see there on the right-hand side, that blocks the ability of the virus to infect activated CD4 lymphocytes. And our all intents and purposes, antiretroviral therapy in today's world blocks this 100%. There's very little evidence for ongoing de novo replication. And without the de novo replication, then it becomes um, really almost impossible for resistance to emerge. And that's point one, that in these people who have been followed over time, you would expect that if there was ongoing replication, that ultimately um, just stochastically, just by chance, there would be emergence of resistance. We don't see that. A second point We've done studies and others have done this. In fact, Deeks and Hunt did this a while ago where you add um, a, a, a fourth or even fifth agent to this to see if you can drive it down, and you don't. You it's don't. Right. right where it is, right? So that what that is, if you go back to the top part here, the HIV-infected cells, those die off uh, over a period of about a day or two. But on the upper right-hand side, you see the latently infected CD4 lymphocytes, and those cells are the are the reservoir, if you will. And every now and then they spit out virus that you can detect. And the point is that that reservoir is usually bigger in somebody who had very high baseline viral load like this guy did. And so I think what we're looking at here is mostly biology and that these folks, we can't change this unless we find a way to reduce the latent uh, reservoir population. Now, this is the concerning part. And Carlos alluded to this. These are data that just came out of Croy um, uh, uh, just in, in, in March. And what you're looking at here is that those people who had uh, persistent viral loads between 50 and 999, and then they break it down further between 50 and 199, you can see just below the line there, um, they do do better than those people on the at the bottom who have high-level viremia. But they don't do as well as the people who are less than 50. My take-home interpretation of this is that it's not because of ongoing replication, but there is something as a marker. Um, someone who who at baseline had very high viral load, you get it under control. They do well overall, especially obviously to no treatment, but they don't do quite as well as the people who, for whatever reason, can get it under control. What can you what can you do about that? Not much. I mean, this is the biology. This is that person. So you do, we do all the best things we can to kind of keep people uh, functioning and, and, and doing well. I just think this is biology and we so far haven't been successful at changing that. And, and I think, so, I think it's, it's worth mentioning also that there's no point on changing, but there's also no point on adding drugs. Right. right. That's right. right. I mean, if you no. want to. Experiment, you can, but it's unlikely to change anything. Another another point, Mike, just to reinforce what you just said already, is that everyone is viremic. Um, if, yeah. if you use a sensitive enough assay, you're going to find occasional virus particles. Um, and what we had uh, in, in our clinic noticed is that um, suddenly we were seeing more of these persistent, very low-level viremias. And it turned out that because of COVID, 
uh, we had switched uh, the um, the lab that we were using for our viral loads uh, and to, to one that had a higher or a, a more sensitive assay. And so yep. we were just not seeing them before. And so right. there's a lot, lot going on here. Well, that's yeah. a great point. And I think now that we've been having viral load for many, many, many years, we've sort of gotten away from thinking about the test itself. And when we were struggling with this in the mid-90s about, well, does viral load tell us anything? And the answer was, uh-huh, it does. <laughs> but the point is we we saw that threshold go from, I don't know, 10,000 cut off to 1,000 to 200 and now 50 and 20. Um, you're right. I think what we maybe can take away from this is that Perhaps that, let's call it on-treatment set point, if you will, that that level is really more of a reflection of their reservoir, perhaps, than it is uh, of any kind of ongoing replication. Um, so this is, by the way, this is obviously retro, retroviral failure. So even in people that have got persistent low-level viremia, when it starts going up, it usually takes off. And it's not just a blip. It continues on higher. So how do we manage these folks? I'm not going to really give a case here, but I wanted to get back in the last couple of minutes to uh, some of the newer therapies. Uh, Jeff alluded to fostemzivir that's just been released. Um, one thing I'll start with is that um, uh, the, the Scenix group uh, with leading with Mari Kitahata did an, a really nice analysis and what they're looking at here is people with limited treatment op- options, or you could call them highly treatment experienced. If you go back over time, if you look at the pro- proportion of the population who had uh, that that uh, place where they didn't have much we could do for them, uh, that number went to like a peak of 8%, and then notice that around 2007 it drops. Why? Because integrase inhibitors came around. And those of us who lived through the days of 2000 to 2002, we were using things like T20. It helped us. It was a new drug, but it wasn't sufficient. But the integrase inhibitors were game changers. And so it added a, a new option that we were able to do. But I think what's interesting about this analysis is that if you look out over time, that amount of people that we're experiencing who we're having trouble concocting a regimen for is vanishingly small. It's not certainly they exist, right? But they're the types of patients who nowadays with integrase inhibitors, if people are taking their medicine, we can usually bring them under control. So what it's telling me at least is that um, a lot of the folks who are in this category now are folks who have trouble taking medicines or have had other things in their life that are interfering with that. What was fascinating though, is that if you look at those people especially recently, once the integrase inhibitors came around, and the success once the integrase inhibitors came on board of getting undetectable tests was no different after 2009 between those who had limited treatment options and those who didn't. So though integrase inhibition was a game changer. So what do we have? Just a general rules of thumb, confirm the virologic failure, explore the power regimens and the resistance tests, as we always do, and then, of course, try to find two fully active drugs. Sometimes it's dolutegravir twice a day. Sometimes it's uh, uh, a tenofovir, but the K60R could hold us back there. The boosted darunavir seems to help a lot. Um, and then we have these new drugs, uh, ibalizumab and fostemzivir, that we can throw into the mix. And uh, just to finish that out, and I want to hear from you guys. After I, so we didn't have time to go into this earlier, so I added a couple slides here, but I think about this drug is that it um, is that it binds to GP120 and prevents uh, the binding 
to seek ourselves. Um, the PK uh, is done daily. The, one thing I think it's important to note is that there's some changes in the GP120 that make it difficult for the parent drug Timsevere to bind, yet in the studies, it didn't seem to really matter that much. Um, just quickly to go through that, um, the, end, the end of the day effectiveness or getting less than, than 200 copies uh, was just as good depending on, at least at, at the end of the study period, um, regardless of that. So no one's recommending at this point to test for that prior to uh, administering this drug. So that's a whole bunch at once uh, comments from the panel. You know, I think in the Bright study in the subgroup that had very few active drugs that you saw that the Vostimzivir had a degree of activity of about 0.7 log reduction, which is very similar to what we used to see with Zidovidine and right. uh, Stavidine, et cetera. So it definitely has antiviral activity and it seems to be well tolerated. Cost is potentially going to be an issue. You know, if you have somebody on Ibilizumab and Vostimzivir, just those two drugs alone, if you were paying full price for them, would be about $200,000 a year. Yeah. And I think, you know, you pull back to the big picture and say, well, why are they charging so much? It's because not that many people. Right. Well, Very small population. population. So, yeah. So they've got to charge, I guess, that much to make back. Oh, it's because they can. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too. Okay. And as anyway, guys, thank you. As Jeff announced, uh, uh, this was approved this month. Uh, so the conclusions, art therapy should be initiated uh, uh, with a integrase inhibitor unless otherwise indicated uh, as close to the time of diagnosis as we can. Uh, in the presence of low-level viremia, probably best to just continue on with what you've got. And as we said, also adding new drugs to that doesn't necessarily improve things. Um, when I, I didn't get to the low CD4 count response, but um, uh, the take-home point there is that uh, there, it's the same kind of rule, that adding on doesn't help. That's a biologic phenomena that uh, when people have a low CD4 count that doesn't respond, uh, it, typically, uh, it typically goes up uh, slowly, but ultimately over 10 or 15 years starts to catch up. Dolutegravir is one of the now many drugs of choice in pregnant women. Weight gain, we talked about <clears throat> uh, to a, a large extent, pun intended, and then the use of two drugs sometimes, uh, the use of two active drugs is important in virologic failure. So let's segue over to the Q&A period. Um, uh, I'll just ask the questions to the panel. Um, so uh, there's a, just to clarify, TAF, does TAF decrease osteopenia uh, or does TDF? Jeff, do you know? Well, I mean, you're less likely to develop osteopenia if you start TAF versus TDF in general, particularly as you pointed out with boosted uh, drugs. Yeah. Um, whether switching to TAF has a significant effect is debatable. Right. right. How about dietegravir? We, we said this, but just to reiterate, the question is about first trimester. Okay. Yeah, again, it appears to be safe at the first trimester. That's why they changed the guidelines. And therefore, the next question is, so should it be discontinued in a pregnant woman? No. 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 Right. All right. <clears throat> I've heard horror stories um, on bad regimens given in the ER. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> really bad regimens. I've heard horror stories of a lot of things happening. You know? yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I think, you know, let's, I mean, it's, it's again, I think antiretroviral therapy requires that somebody who understands the drug starts them. You know, you don't start somebody in the ER and chemotherapy for lung cancer, right? Right. Which, you, know, <laughs> you don't say, here's your, your cisplatinum and, you know, <laughs> come to clinic tomorrow, you know? I mean... <laughs> Well, Paul's an oncologist, so he can. Right, do it. right. <laughs> Even um, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a big believer in rapid therapy, but honestly, I think the ER is not the place to be practicing this kind of long-term medicine. I want to say, do exactly what Paul says. I want to link this person. I mean, I want to get this person, hand them over, hand deliver into the clinic, develop a relationship, start them on therapy. And that can be done in 24 hours, 48 hours. You know, it doesn't need to be right away. I think that's right. I think showing people that this is important and we're paying attention. This leads to the next question is what about the people who um, are, are, are ARV experienced? They show up at the ER. They hadn't taken their medicine for a while. Do you restart the regimen in the ER? So that's, again, the biggest challenge that we have, you know, the biggest advantage that you have is, is, in those in, in programs that do HIV testing in the ER, it's actually you find the people that have fallen out of care. And retention and care, lose to, to continue with care is our biggest challenge in this country. Again, you can restart them, but the most important thing is that you, can, you need to relink them. You need to actually show them a way to get back into care because a lot of those people have fallen out of care for reasons that have to do a lot with social determinants of health. They lost their insurance. They lost this. They moved. And we need to show, use that opportunity to hand them to give them a helping hand and get them back into care. Less important is the drugs you give them, more important is the care you give them. And I think, Carlos, one of the things that if we're going to routinely restart the drugs in the ER, we ought to consider having a clinic in the ER, you know, because there's something keeping the patient from engaging in their routine care, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially maybe not on the first episode, but on the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh episode. Right, but right now the ERs are such a, at least ours is so overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With COVID, yeah. yeah. They'll be glad to get the patients over to our right. clinic. So here's an interesting question. So if you weren't sure about how adherent a new patient is going to be, are you better off starting a PI regimen or should you start a, an integrase inhibitor regimen? You know, the, the data does not support that we're better off starting a PI regimen because we're very poor at predicting adherence. I was going to say the data doesn't support <laughs> we're good at predicting adherence. Right. So you shouldn't be making your treatment decisions based on your best estimate of adherence. You know, the side effects, et cetera, of the integrases are so tolerable that that's usually what, you know, people prefer. And you can be pretty, you know, slack on adherence with integrase and still do fine. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's right, and, and sometimes it's more pills or a larger pill. Yeah. So and there may be a reason you want to use a protease inhibitor. That's yes. great, but it, don't let it drive your decision. Yep. Um, do people gain weight with TAF due to increased appetite, or does it happen even without a change in caloric intake? Well, it has to have caloric intake. Right? <laughs> 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 Got it. Yeah, the, if the, you're weight, weight comes from calories, they're the same thing. So. It's right. a calorie booster. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would guess. I, I don't know the answer directly. I don't know that we've actually studied that. It must be, it has to be from intake, but. Right. The type of fat you accumulate is different. And right. I think that's. The next question. So it asks that. Is it, is it central body fat or was it uh, more 
fat all over. You do gain some fat all over, but there's also a greater increase in the body fat. fat. So it's not the fat redistribution we used to talk about with uh, DDI and D14. This is is fat accumulation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everywhere. Um, Okay. Uh, Do you recommend a regimen for um, the 3TC FTC resistant patient? Uh, yeah, I'll take this one because this was a question I actually had in there and if we had to shorten up the program, I took it out. But generally speaking, if you're using, let's say you just have an M184V or M184I, the take home point is that with an integrase inhibitor, uh, as part, as the anchor drug, it, it really doesn't seem to matter that much and the success rates are very, very similar. So I don't think I would, that would be deterred from using the, uh, the, the FTC or 3TC. Also, as we talked about earlier, a 0.7 log drop in viral load uh, is, is generally a good thing. We saw it with fostemzivir, and you can still get that type of drop even when there's an M184V and uh, 3TC, for example. Back in the day, Joe Aaron did a study on that and saw a 0.5 to 0.7 log drop even with the resistant mutation. So quite a bit different than a Fovren's and, say, K103N. Here's a question. So does it mean... Uh, that we can use this uh, TAF uh, FTC, I had to translate it, um, in PrEP patients as well. So uh, what about, well, we're going to get to PrEP in just a minute. So I might, I might save that for, for Susan Buckbinder. Mm-hmm. Um, but the answer is, uh, yeah, you can, uh, perhaps, but we'll talk about that. Um, what are the issues with Bictegravir in pregnancy? Do we have any data yet? I haven't seen that. No, I haven't seen any. I'm sure it's underway. Yeah. And, and my, I mean, I wouldn't use it yet for that reason, but I think as a rule of thumb, there's a few nuanced difference between Dalutegravir and Bictegravir. For the most part, they behave very similarly in, in most situations. So I would anticipate it would be okay, but we don't have those data. So I wouldn't. I mean, you've got significant options without using it, right? Yeah. yeah so why doing- take a risk? Um, in a rapid start for a newly diagnosed patients with viral OCD4 and resistance still pending, which non-integrase, non-TAF regimen might you use? Well, obviously, if cost is no issue, you could use TDF3TC and Deravarine, um, you know, until you get your resistance testing back. I mean, it, it res- transmitted resistance to Deravarine is still pretty unusual, right? What about boosted Darunavir? Yep, boosted darunavir, right? TDF3TC boosted darunavir would be perfectly okay. You could use a favorins again. I mean, there's... But, but why would you not use an integrase inhibitor? Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so would you switch a person... This is... So coming back to our last discussion. Somebody's on Vic FTC TAF. Once a day, and they're doing it's a woman, say she's 30 years old, and she gets pregnant. Do you switch her off, or do you keep her on? She's now two months pregnant. You have a discussion with her, right? I mean, she's got a few more weeks of her first trimester, and we don't know for a fact that Bictegravir is safe, so you might switch her if she agrees. And we probably guess it is safe. Probably. But without having the data, no. Right. And And then if... Yeah, go ahead. And then you obviously want to, I don't know how well we're doing these days and reporting to the antiretroviral registry, you know, the pregnancy registry. Yeah. 
and I, you know, they're always encouraging us all to report outcomes, right? Yeah. And so I think, I think the OB docs among us would switch because, uh, as I remember our, our discussions going back from the very beginning, um, there's a, there's a, ten, there's a real desire to really stick with what we know in pregnant right. women. And, uh, as long as the woman is willing. Right. And they right. see the outcomes on the other side in terms of uh, any kind of adverse outcome with the birth. So I yield to them on that. Um, is a two-drug regimen ideal for an elite controller? We sort of covered this, right? Yeah. We covered that, yeah. I mean, yeah. theoretically, it would yeah. work. How about an elite? This is interesting. An elite controller off of meds, are they untransmittable? They're undetectable. Yeah, they're un. As far as we know, yeah. Yeah. I would answer that one by just saying it's biology, right? Right. And, and the transmission, we go back to Tom Quinn uh, in Rakai in 2000, he published a study yeah. at, at, discord, at discordant couples and the quintile, that is the small fraction of people who had less than a thousand copies among those paired, one one partner's infected, the other isn't, there were no transmissions in that group. Right. I'm afraid that we've run out of time. There's only a few questions left. I'm very pleased that we, um, um, very pleased that we got to so many of them. Uh, and I apologize if you've sent one in and we didn't get to it. Um, so I will say this before we go to our break. Uh, first off, thanks to our panel and thanks to the audience for great questions and, and for the engagement. We're going to be taking a 15 minute break. You can see the clock counting down there. Um, I don't know when we're going to come back. Before we do, just a reminder that there's some pre-test, uh, pre-course activities that uh, we need you to uh, uh, to fill out. Um, it should have been done at the beginning, um, and and then we'll get we'll get through the uh, those at the, at the as the course goes on. So let's take a. Uh, I should play that song from Hamilton. Take a break, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll come back in uh, just a little over 15 minutes. Thanks. <laughs> 